Hey guys, good evening. Welcome to Fuel. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Rock Church. And uh, it's my great honor, as always, to be sharing God's word with you. You know, I was thinking about this um, earlier and, you know, creating these messages and sharing them with you. It's, um, it's my act of service and it's my act of worship. And so um, I love doing this and I'm so grateful um, that we get to do this together. So thank you for tuning in. We are continuing our study in the tremendous book of Revelation. It is quite the book. And we've already covered quite a bit of territory. And uh, we're just getting started. So let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. And we'll get right to it. Father, we love you. We thank you again for your word. God, I thank you for uh, everybody watching. I pray that your hand would be upon them. That you would bless them. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come now and... Uh, fill every home with your light and your love. Um, I pray that you would encourage anybody who's discouraged. I pray that you will break any attack of the enemy that's coming against anybody. And uh, God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, it is alive because you are alive. And um, we ask you to bless our study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... When last we met, uh, we left on a cliffhanger, if you remember. The Apostle John exiled on the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He's spending time in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, not knowing he's about to receive the greatest prophetic revelation any man had ever received. Daniel was a close second because he was allowed to see some of the same things that John did. And that brings me to a point. Have you noticed the pattern yet throughout the Bible? Daniel, for example, he was in exile, but he stayed faithful to God and maintained a close relationship with him. And not coincidentally, God gave him amazing revelation. John, too, was also in exile, but stays faithful to God and maintains a close relationship with him. And again, not coincidentally, God gives him amazing revelation. And so that's a recurring lesson from, from Scripture, and we don't want to miss it, and we definitely want to benefit from it. And it's this. Fellowship with God leads to revelation from God. We're instructed to draw near to God, and He will draw near to us. And one of the reasons God wants us to draw near to Him is because He also has some things to share with us. God likes to talk to us. Amen. He likes to speak directly to our hearts. I remember the first time that happened, the first time I felt like God was speaking directly to me. I was spending time in prayer and Bible study. I was reading in the book of John, and it was a passage at the time that didn't make any sense to me. And I remember just spending time with God and just slowing down and reading each word very slowly. And as I was doing that, all of a sudden, it was like somebody shone a flashlight on what I was reading. All of a sudden, I just understood it. It was like God spoke directly to my heart. God shined a light on that passage. I later learned that that process is called illumination. Illumination is a work of the Holy Spirit which enables us to understand and apply the spiritual message of the scriptures. 
And that's the privilege of every blood-bought saint of the living God, right? God wants to illuminate his word to us. In illumination, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes so that we may know the scriptures. It's one of the confirmations that the Bible is the word of God. And so fellowship with God leads to revelation from God. Somebody needs to know that. God wants to speak with you. He wants to share his heart with you. He wants to give you revelation knowledge about how things work in his kingdom so that you can align your life with him, so that you can make the right decisions. And I just want to encourage you. That's why your flesh and the devil fights your time with God so much. The enemy does not want us to have that intimate relationship with Christ because he knows what God has for us. He knows that that's where that meeting place, that's where ordinary people like you and I become dangerous to him. That's why he tries to throw a wet blanket on your faith. That's why he tries to marginalize you. That's why he tries to distract you and make you lose your focus. Because if he knows if he can get you distracted, scattered, and unfocused, he'll never have to worry about you coming out of your prayer closet full of the Spirit, full of power, and full of Holy Spirit wisdom. But we're not going to fall for that. Amen? So takeaway one tonight is fellowship with God leads to revelation from God. And God wants to give that to us. So now John is in the spirit on the Lord's day and he hears that voice behind him like a trumpet. And we went over what happened next. He turns to see the voice that's speaking with him. And when he does, he sees Jesus in his full glory and holiness. He sees Jesus unveiled. He sees Jesus on full power. His hair is white like wool. His eyes like a flame of fire. His face is shining like the sun at noon in the desert he he's clothed in his high priestly robe out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword which we know represents the word of god the word bringing forth the word and john's reaction when he sees jesus in all his glory he does what any one of us would do in his position so overwhelmed by his glory and awesome holiness he cannot stand in christ's presence he falls at his feet as if he were dead. And that's where we ended on the cliffhanger last week because we saw John's reaction. He's laying at Jesus' feet like a dead man. But what's going to be Jesus' reaction to John's reaction? Let's pick it up right there, starting in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. It reads, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches and so now that brings us to takeaway two tonight which is encountering god is an overwhelming experience if we ever encounter god in his glory 
it's going to overwhelm us. John sees him and he's overwhelmed by him. And that's the true reaction that anybody has when they get in the presence of God. It happened to Isaiah. Isaiah 6.5, we read Isaiah's response after seeing God on his throne. He cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's overwhelmed. It happens to Daniel. He sees the Lord in all his glory. We see his reaction in Daniel chapter 10, verses 7 through 9. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. John is overwhelmed, Isaiah is overwhelmed, and Daniel is overwhelmed. And of course, another famous God encounter. When Saul of Tarsus encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. It reads, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Can you imagine? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Saul is overwhelmed. You see, God is a good and loving God. But God is not like us. You know, when people say, Jesus is my homie, I know a lot of times they're saying it in a sense that we can approach God. But God, Jesus in all his glory, he's different than us. He's holy and he's powerful. And mankind in our unholiness cannot bear to be in his presence. And apart from God's grace, nobody would be able to stand in his presence. You hear people say, oh, you know what? I'm going to say some things to God when I get in his presence. Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> when we get into the presence of his holiness, we're going to be blessed just to stand. You see, when we get a handle on this, this fact that we cannot come into God's presence because of our inherent sinfulness, then it makes the good news that much better. You see... By contrast, the good news says that we can come into his presence. We can enter his gates with thanksgiving and come into his courts with praise. But only because of what Jesus has done. And it says because of what Jesus has done and because we have by faith accepted what Jesus did on the cross, 
we now have access to his presence without fear of judgment. Hebrews 4.16 Therefore, let us with privilege approach the throne of grace, that is the throne of God's gracious favor, with confidence and without fear, so that we may receive mercy for our failures. God's a merciful God, amen? And find his amazing grace to help in time of need. You see, if we have accepted Christ, we get to approach his throne without fear of rejection. Even, and especially when we blow it, we need to run to the throne. Amen? The devil wants us to run away from God, but we need to run to the throne and receive mercy and grace. God made a way for us to run to him. If that's good news, say amen. Now back to John. John is on his face in Jesus' presence. How does Jesus react? He places his right hand on him, and Jesus' words to him are amazing. He says, do not be afraid. You see, because John is a child of God, Jesus immediately removes the fear and dread that has fallen upon John. I like the way F.B. Meyer said it. He says, the manifestation of his glory may overwhelm our mortality, but the touch of his pierced hand encourages the soul. His favorite assurance is, fear not. Now remember, we said this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Here Jesus is going to unveil three things about himself that are really three reasons why John doesn't have to fear. Reason number one, he's the first and the last. Reason number two, he's the living one. One, He was dead and behold, he's alive. And then reason number three, he has the keys of death and Hades. Let's look at each one. The first and the last. Jesus is the first and the last. This speaks to his deity. He came out of eternity. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Christmas in a nutshell. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came out of eternity and stepped into time. And then he moves out of time back into eternity at the ascension. He steps out of our time domain. He is from everlasting to everlasting. J. Vernon McGee says... The word everlasting means from the vanishing point in the past to the vanishing point in the future. He is God. He is first because there were none before him and he is last for there are none to follow him. Next, he calls himself the living one, the one that was dead and is now alive. This speaks of his redemptive death and resurrection he is the living one there were other others in history like we talked about that god raised from the dead but jesus is the only one to die be raised from the dead and never die again he is the living one he is alive and because he lives so do we just as he is alive and will never die again so it is with us either we will go through death's door never to die again 
or if we are alive and remain until his coming at the rapture, at the harpazo, we will skip death completely. And we will ever be with our Lord. If I'm honest with you, I prefer the second option, right? Let's skip death completely. But that's not our choice, right? But regardless of the how, we have assurance that the living one lives on. And because he lives on, we will live on with him forever. If, everybody say if, if we've trusted him for salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. Then he tells John that he has the keys to death and Hades. This speaks of his authority. Whenever you see keys in the Bible, they indicate authority. Keys open doors that are locked, right? Keys indicate authority. So this is telling us that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, he, and this is so important, and he alone has authority over death and Hades. Nobody can claim what Jesus claims because nobody did what Jesus did. Amen? Only a relationship with Jesus resolves the sin issue. You see, the sin issue is this. Sin leads to death and judgment. And every person has sinned, right? Jesus' sacrifice resolves the sin issue. Jesus' sacrifice provides the one and only way out for mankind. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' sacrifice alone provides the one and only way out. Some of you might say, hey, that's not fair. But let me give an illustration. If I were bit by a venomous snake and the doctor tells me that unless they give me the anti-venom for the poison, I will die. The last thing I would do was yell at the doctor for only giving me one choice. Amen? It's the same with sin. We've all been bit by sin, but Jesus' blood is the anti-venom, and faith in what Jesus did is how we receive it. He's the only one to overcome death, hell, and the grave, and so he is the only one that has authority over death, hell, and the grave. This is a marvelous truth being shared right now, and let me ask you, have you put your trust in him yet? Don't let another day go by without resolving the sin issue by putting your trust in Christ alone for salvation, for forgiveness of your sins. Jesus and Jesus alone has the keys to death and Hades. He is mankind's only hope. So we don't need to be mad that he's the only way back to God. We need to be happy that there is a way back to God. Right? Aren't you grateful for Jesus? So Jesus comforts John. He comforts him by telling him to not be afraid. But now he's going to give him his assignment. You see, there's a reason why God's given him this revelation. It's not just for general purpose. But the reason he's giving him this vision, this revelation, is because John has work to do. And that leads us to takeaway three tonight. And it's this. Revelation always produces something. The revelation we receive should bring something into the world that wasn't there previously. If we receive revelation from God's word and it doesn't prompt action from us, 
something's wrong. Because true revelation will always birth something. It might be an action. Something that you do. Like forgiving somebody who wronged us in the past. Or it might be a decision. It might be a decision to stop doing something that we used to do. We, we see it in the Word. We get revelation about something in the Word. And we say, oh, I do that. I need to stop. A lot of times the reaction is just a change of mind in how we look at the world, which changes our future decisions. It helps us get in alignment with God's will. But true revelation, the the bottom line is it will always produce something. Now, John is given revelation and with it comes an assignment. His assignment is to write the things he has seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after these things. Jesus gives John his assignment, and that's what we've been using for our outline. Now, chapter 1 ends with Jesus interpreting or deciphering two things that John sees. These are like freebies we talked about. There are seven stars and seven golden lampstands that John sees in his vision of the glorified Christ. Jesus tells him that the seven stars represent the seven angels or messengers of the seven churches that John is going to be writing to. And the seven lampstands represent the seven churches themselves. We talked about that last time, but more on both of these as we go. All right, so that concludes chapter one. And with it, we have now already completed the first part of the three-part outline. The things that John has seen, which relates to this incredible vision of the glorified Christ. So now we're going to go ahead and shift our study to part two of our three-part outline. The things that are. This section is amazing. Chapters two and three are going to cover the church age. Now, because this just happens to be the age that you and I are in, it becomes extremely relevant to us. For the last 2,000 plus years, human history has been parked in the church age. However, there is strong evidence that we're on the brink of a transition. We are on the brink of a transition so colossal in its scope that there has never been a time in human history like the time you and I live in. Could we be that transitional generation? I personally think we might be. We're going to save that discussion for another session. But for now, you and I, we need to talk about the fact that we are part of the church age. And so this section is extremely relevant for you and I. I can't stress how important these two chapters are. You see, there there is a temptation when you get to the book of Revelation to, to go through these quickly chapters two and three i want to hurry up and get through chapters two and three so i can get to the visions concerning the end right but if we do that we make a big mistake and we miss out on a huge benefit maybe the most beneficial part of the entire book of revelation for you and me is chapters two and three because in this we see jesus speaking and evaluating his church during the church age. We're going to find out what he 
likes and what he doesn't like as regards to his church. We're going to hear him speak directly to us multiple times. We're going to hear from him directly about the things he wants us to do and be as his body. And he's going to share with us the things he has a problem with. And so I personally love, these are actually two of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible because it's like a doctor checking up on our heart, right? It's like a checkup from our heart. And I always come away with these two chapters with a closer walk with Jesus. So we're not going to hurry through these two beautiful chapters. Now, chapters two and three, what are they all about? What's the overview? Well, very basically, we have in these two chapters, seven letters from Jesus to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. Now, Asia then didn't mean what it means now. It's not the entire continent of Asia, but actually it's modern day Turkey. So Asia in the New Testament is Turkey. And in Turkey, there were these seven churches that have come to be known as the seven churches of the apocalypse. And these were all literal churches whose existence has been verified by archaeology and whose ruins are still there and can be visited if we wanted to. Now, I've got a picture up. Notice in the picture something interesting. There's an order that Jesus gives the letters. And if you follow the, the, the order, it is actually a circular pattern starting from Ephesus. You'll see Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It forms a circle. That is why you may hear the term when describing this part that Revelation was a circular letter. That means that it was supposed to go to all seven churches, starting with Ephesus, and delivered on a circuit. It would start in Ephesus, then it would go to Smyrna, then Pergamum, and so on. So these are seven literal churches that were established and in existence in the second half of the first century A.D., and that means that this letter was applicable specifically to those seven churches. It was a message straight to them. However, in a way that only the Holy Spirit can do, it has a much broader application as well. As a matter of fact, as we study these churches, we're going to see it can be applied in at least three different ways. There's more. We'll even talk about a fourth later on. But... Another way to say it is that each church has at least three levels of application. So let's look very quickly at the three levels of application about these seven letters. The first level is the local application. And this just means what I just said. Each letter can be applied specifically to each church that it was addressed to. The letter to Ephesus was directly applicable to the church at Ephesus at that time. And so on. But now watch. The next level of application is called the universal one. And that means that all seven letters are applicable to all Christian churches throughout all of the church age. In other words, a church in 1000 AD could study these letters and there would be many things that would be applicable to them. And a church today, like our church in 2020, we can study it 
and still find it applicable to us. Now, the third level of application is where it gets personal. This is the personal level of application. And this is the level where the crosshairs are put directly on each one of us individually, our individual walk with Christ, our individual relationship with Christ. And as we study these letters out, we're going to see that Jesus has some things to say directly to us. He says over and over again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so if our ears and our hearts are open, the Holy Spirit will speak to us in a precise way directly to our hearts in each one of these letters. It's a very personal letter. It's beautiful. And now takeaway number four for tonight is this. God is speaking. Are we listening? That's what we really need to think about. We always want to make sure that our hearts are open and attentive when we study. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We want to have an open heart so we can hear God speaking to us. All right, well, I think that that's enough background to get us started. We're going to fill in more blanks as we go, but let's go ahead now and get started on the things which are the church age by looking at the first letter from Jesus to the churches. And this first letter is addressed to a very prominent church in the first century, the church of Ephesus. So turn now, if you would, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and let's read verses 1 through 7. We're not going to spend a lot of time analyzing this yet because we're just setting it up. But listen to these words of Jesus to this first century church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Man, God has a lot of great things to say about this church. But now watch this. He says, but I have this against you. Uh-oh, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and re will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we're going to break this down next time, like I said. But I wanted us to read it because I want us to get the overall flavor. And I also wanted to call your attention to the structure of this letter. Because we're going to see that Jesus uses a very definite structure, a very definite method to communicate with each one of these seven churches. If you have received the handouts, take a look at your second handout. It has a spreadsheet on it. And this spreadsheet is going to be really instrumental 
and helping us understand what's going on in these two chapters. We're going to build it piece by piece. And what we're going to see is that Jesus uses a specific structure when talking to his churches. It's actually a template. And he uses the same template for all the churches. And this template contains all the specific areas that he wants to cover. It's kind of like a report card. And you can see it very clearly in the letter to Ephesus. And this is going to be the pattern for all seven letters. So let's look at each specific element in this template. And once we get it for Ephesus, we'll understand it for all seven. The first element in the template is this. The name of the church that it's addressed to. We're going to see that even the name of the church is relevant. The second element is the title or description of himself. Each part of the description we got of Jesus in chapter 1, this is really cool, it maps directly to a message he has for a specific church that he is speaking to at that time. The third element is commendation. In other words, what they're doing good. Jesus is is a good uh, uh, counselor, right? He He's... He's a good Lord, (laughs) and he's going to tell them the things that they're doing good first, right? He doesn't want to discourage them. So he tells them their commendation. But then he goes on to his concerns. Nevertheless, right? You're doing this, this, this good. Nevertheless, where they are missing God's best. He's going to go over that. Not in a condemning way but in a way to be honest with us and tell us where we're blowing it, but then also telling us, hey, let's rectify this so we can move forward. And that's what we see in the exhortation. We find out what God wants them to do related to the commendation that he's given and or his concern. Then the next element is, we'll see this in each and every one. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God is speaking. Are we listening? Are we ready, willing, and motivated to hear and change by the power of His Spirit? And then He gives the promise to the overcomer. God is a rewarder. I love this about God. He delights in making and keeping promises to His children. So those are the seven elements of Jesus's template to each church. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up for tonight. We covered a lot of material, but I want to give you some homework. Don't worry, it's going to be pretty easy. Your homework assignment is to read chapters two and three. That should take you no more than about five or six minutes. And familiarize yourself with his message to each one of those seven churches. And then go back through it one more time and see if you can notice this pattern that we just went over from the template. That's a good place for us to cut it off. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you again. Lord, we could just spend hours uh, just digging into um, just the tiniest parts of your word because it is so jam-packed with revelation knowledge. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage, that you would strengthen, that you would build up every person watching, God, and that we would just continue. You would continue to draw us to yourself that we would continue to pursue you to chase after you with all our heart soul mind and strength 
We love you, Jesus. We thank you that even in these crazy times, and especially in these crazy times, we get to hold the hand of the one who sees the end from the beginning, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the living one who was dead and is alive forevermore. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, here we go. We have the first part, the first section knocked out, and now, really, the book is starting to take off. That's all I got for you. Pastor Chris signing off. Until next time, may God richly bless you and yours.